Jeremiah 43 is where we're going to be today. Jeremiah 43. I read a story about a man who visited his doctor, which ties into what we'll be looking at in our time together. The story goes as follows. A man went to see his doctor in an acute state of anxiety. Doctor, he said, you have to help me. You have to help me. I'm dying. Everywhere I touch, it hurts. I touch my head, and it hurts. I touch my leg, and it hurts. I touch my stomach, and it hurts. I touch my chest, and it hurts. You have to help me, Doc. Everything hurts. The doctor gave him a complete examination. Mr. Smith, he said, I have good news and bad news for you. The good news is you're not dying. The bad news is you have a broken finger. Well, it didn't, it didn't take long after that diagnosis for Mr. Smith to realize that his judgment had been impaired by the condition of his finger. Well, as believers, I, I read that story, as believers, if we decide to make decisions that clearly go against the word of God, then our judgment will be greatly hindered. That's where we're going to be today, as we've seen from our last lesson. Uh, um, that is exactly what we're going to look at in this next chapter. Uh, I remember hearing of a situation involving a family member of a believer downstate. And before I go any further, I need to mention that this isn't anyone that I know, nor am I related to this person, but this particular individual had some health issues, along with a nasty habit of smoking whenever this person would see their doctor. The doctor would tell them what they needed to hear. The doctor would say, you need to stop smoking. So um, this person didn't like hearing this, so what they did was they would visit multiple doctors who would tell them the same thing until one day he found a single doctor who told him that he was okay to smoke. So in reality, this man didn't want to listen to the counsel of someone who told him something that he didn't want to hear. In essence, this man pursued a type of counsel that would permit him to do the very thing that he wanted to do at the expense of the advice of the other doctors. And I think it would be fair to say that this person who bounced around from doctor to doctor had, in essence, a deeply flawed and impaired grip on reality. His judgment was flawed. He was driven by what he wanted to hear versus what he needed to hear. So that's where we're going to be today, Jeremiah chapter 43. We can certainly make the case that God's people up to this point in the narrative of Jeremiah after the destruction of Jerusalem were deeply driven by what they wanted to hear as well versus what they needed to hear. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Jeremiah 43. Today we're going to study verses 13, verses 1 through 13. And these 13 verses will demonstrate to us a very basic principle that we find in this chapter. And that basic principle is, in your notes, believers who choose to go against the clear will of God will find the consequences to be less than desirable and will lose out on the blessings that come when walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Believers who choose to go against the clear will of God will find the consequences to be less than desirable and will lose out on the blessings that come when walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And you'll notice at the top of your notes there that there's been a shift here from what we've been uh, talking about. We've noted the ministry to the survivors in Judah, but now that 
that shift has gone from uh, Judah into Egypt. But this is the same remnant group that we have viewed all along in the narrative of this study. And it's the same group of people who had found themselves in a miserable mess. Johanan had saved this group earlier in chapter 41 from the hand of Ishmael. And in chapter 41, verse 10, we read this. Ishmael took captive all the remnant of the people who were in Mizpah. And, of course, that would include Jeremiah. That would include Jeremiah's scribe, Baruch. And um, that would include the people of God, of course. But that is until Johanan had rescued this group. But immediately after he had rescued the, the people of God, he led them away from the land that God wanted them to dwell in. You'll remember that. So Jeremiah 41 verse 17 reveals that Johanan took God's people in order to proceed into Egypt, right? You remember in, uh, he would take the people of God, they would go into Egypt, and the reason for doing this had been because he and the people of God were driven by fear. It was uh, fear that drove them, and so they had, they had, in essence, watched the Babylonians come in, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. They saw this with their own eyes, and so they sought refuge away from the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in chapter 42, things got a bit interesting, and as we will see today, things are going to get a little bit heated. In chapter 42, Johanan, along with the the leaders of this remnant group, went to Jeremiah because they wanted some direction from God. You remember from our last lesson, or so it seemed that they wanted direction from God. From our last lesson, you'll recall, they said to Jeremiah in that last chapter, verse 6, whether it, referring to the message from God, is pleasant or unpleasant, they said, we will listen to the voice of the Lord, our God, to whom we are sending you, so that it may go well with us when we listen to the voice of the Lord, our God. And of course, God gave them 10 days, right? 10 days to consider their motives here in contacting Jeremiah before God would give them the answer. And we studied this already, and we found out that their motives were not pure. Johanan and the people of God wanted God's approval for something that had clearly gone against what God had wanted for his children. And so, as we studied this lack of judgment on the part of God's people, we labeled this the Johanan syndrome, right? They weren't sincere in wanting to know what the will of God was. That was the reality of chapter 42. They were not sincere. It's the Johannine syndrome. They were guilty of operating from the standpoint of fear rather than faith. And those aren't my words. Those are God's words. You'll remember in, in that last chapter, verse 11, God said to his people, Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you are now fearing. All right? They were fearing King Nebuchadnezzar. They were fearing the Babylonians. And God knew that. The offer from God, I believe, from that last chapter was more than gracious. If God's people were to respond to God in faith by placing themselves under Babylonian rule, after the temple, after um, Jerusalem had been destroyed, God's word to them was, I'm still going to bless you. I'm still going to bless you if you're going to do what I say. So it's, uh, it's a gracious offer. It's a gracious offer. The options were on the table, 
and the message was painfully clear. Problem was, what God said wasn't what they wanted to hear. That was the problem. In fact, Jeremiah couldn't even get the words out of his mouth before the people became upset with him. And that leads us into our text of Scripture today, Jeremiah chapter 43 from this passage. We're going to find three events that transpired immediately after God gave his people his message to them through the prophet Jeremiah. And that brings us to the first event that transpires. And that first event is the message rejected. The message is unfortunately rejected, and we see that in verses 1 through 3. Now remember, this first event takes place because the people of God were fearful. They're fearful. And it caused them to be deceived. So we read in verse 1, But as soon as Jeremiah, whom the Lord their God had sent, had finished telling all the people all the words of the Lord their God, that is all these words. I just want to stop right there. I love how it has been recorded for us that Jeremiah doesn't hold back. He gives to them what they need to hear. He knew that the people of God wanted a certain answer from God, but Jeremiah remains faithful and truthful to the message that God had to give to his people. And so it says there in verse 1 that Jeremiah told Johanan, the leaders, and the people, all the words of the Lord. Isn't that refreshing? All the words. Nothing was held back. All the words of the Lord. You know, it doesn't matter what year it is. It doesn't matter how bad the political situation is or the circumstances in which we find ourselves in, quite frankly. Uh, we are pretty spoiled up here in the UP. Uh, we have uh, so many blessings. We have so much freedom. To be able to meet in freedom is a tremendous blessing. But what I love about verse 1 is that God raises up a man who is faithful to speak to the people of God a message that came directly from God. Jeremiah didn't twist the message or spice the message up so that it appealed to a greater audience. <laughs> That's not what he's about. For Jeremiah, the spotlight was not on himself. It was on his God. And he wanted to bring God the glory with the assignment that God gave him to do so he doesn't hold back. In fact, as he would give the people of God this message that they so desire. We read in verse 2, the first part, Azariah the son of Hashaiah and Johanan the son of Korea and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. You're telling a lie. And again, I just want to stop there for a moment. Let's visualize this situation here. And let's put it into a modern-day context. Let's imagine for a moment that someone is struggling with sin and has not been in fellowship with Jesus Christ, wakes up only to find themselves in a mess, and so they pursue counseling. So they sit down with their pastor. The pastor listens to the situation, then proceeds to give biblical guidance. The pastor tells them that how they are living is sinful and that before they do anything about that situation, the first thing that needs to be repaired is that vertical relationship with God. And suppose the person listening to this counsel hears what it is that they must do, yet responds in rejection to that message and walks away. All right? Now, that was Azariah and Johanan in this passage right here. 
I mean, God makes it abundantly clear from the last chapter what it was that he wanted his people to do, and none of it involved Egypt. Furthermore, the illustration of the counseling room falls short because Azariah and Johanan didn't give Jeremiah the dignity to just walk away. Instead, they accuse him of, a, of telling a lie. And look with me at how the word of God describes these men after refusing God's word. How do they describe these men? The word of God tells us <laughs> they don't listen to the word of God They've been pursuing the word of God in that last chapter. They really aren't interested in hearing from God. And the word of God tells us these are arrogant men. They're arrogant. And uh, verse 2 says they're arrogant. The Hebrew word is the word zid. It's found in the Bible 13 times, and it's never used in a positive sense. It's mostly used in Psalms. The prophets use it four times, once in Isaiah, twice in Malachi, and right here in Jeremiah 43. In fact, in Isaiah, in Isaiah, he uses this word, and it's extremely negative. Take a look with me. Verse 11, chapter 13. Look at how this Hebrew word is used. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud. There's that word, zid. And abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I mean, this is not a desirable quality you want to have. It's not. And these men are given this adjective because they've rejected the word of God. They have been given this description because they've rejected the will of God and because they had rejected God's servant. Now this is quite the accusation, but it isn't the first time. Jeremiah has been falsely accused, so they continue saying, look with me, uh, the second half of verse 2 into verse 3, the Lord our God has not sent you to say, now they're telling Jeremiah this, he has not sent you not to reside there, but Baruch, the son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to give us over into the hand of the Chaldeans so they will put us to death or exile us to Babylon. Convinced that God was wrong and they were right, Warren Wearsby says, Johanan and his friends so much as told Jeremiah he was a liar and a false prophet and that God had neither sent him nor spoken to him. If anyone from this remnant had spoken truth, it was Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah is the only one in this narrative willing to speak the truth of God's word to God's people, which makes this episode so ironic. But because the people did not believe Jeremiah... Because they didn't listen to nor obey the clear will of God, what happens next is a shame. And it brings us to that second event that we see in this chapter, chapter 43, the wrong course is pursued. And we're going to see this wrong course pursued right into the 44th chapter. I mean, it's just going to continue on. It's going to continue on. They're going to move deep into Egypt. The wrong course is pursued. We see it in verses 4 through 7. Look with me, verse 4. And we'll read through verse 7. So Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to stay in the land of Judah. But Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces took the entire remnant of Judah who had returned from all the nations to which they had been driven away in order to reside in the land of Judah. 
the men, the women, the children, the king's daughters, and every person that Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, and grandson of Shapan, together with Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch the son of Neriah, and they entered the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord and went in as far as Tapanhes. That is a sad verse right there. Verse 7. Now, as we look at how this event plays out, they are forced to conclude that Johanan really was not sincere in wanting to know what God wanted for him or for the people of God. One of my commentaries stated that this whole situation is so ironic because in the previous century, God's people had pleaded with God, right? They pleaded with God um, about their Egyptian slavery, that they might leave Egypt. And now the people of God are here in Jeremiah chapter 43. Into Egypt, into that same land. And it wasn't just the leaders or the commanders that had directed the people to go to this place of slavery. Verse 3, take, take a look there. It says, And all the people, and all the people, did not obey the voice of the Lord. That's significant. All the people. When God's people choose to disobey the clear words of God, then they are only opening them up, themselves up to be enslaved or enticed by that sinful decision. The consequences are always, 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 always 100% less than desirable. That is one of the biggest guarantees I can make um, in my time from what I have witnessed in full-time ministry. And how did this remnant operate? They are operating from the standpoint of fear. It would have taken some courage for God's people to have returned under that Babylonian rule. If you put yourself in their shoes for a moment, it wouldn't have been easy to just return. This remnant knew what King Nebuchadnezzar had done to King Zedekiah. They knew that the Babylonians were harsh. It would have taken a great amount of faith for them to have obeyed the words of God. But the point is this, Johanan, the commanders, and the people feared man more than they feared God himself. And that's where they get into trouble. They fear man more than they fear God himself. Which leads us to another great principle that we have here from this text. God's people will always put themselves in harm's way by fearing man more than God himself. Granted, I will admit, there are world leaders I'm glad that I'm not living under. I'll admit that. And I'm grateful for that. But no matter who we live under, or who the next president is, we should never fear more than God himself. Don't fear political leaders. Don't fear political leaders. They might be able to take away your rights, they might be able to get away with doing awful things behind the scenes. But they're accountable to God. And we need to keep in mind, God is the one who is sovereign, who is over it all. He has placed those people into those positions of leadership, whether we like it or not. So we may not be sure what the future holds for us, but I love what the psalmist says. Psalm 94, verse 19. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. On more than one occasion, I've sat down 
and have just been simply refreshed by reading the Word of God. How many of you have ever been refreshed by turning, going to the Drudge Report <laughs> on the internet? <laughs> you won't get refreshed there. If you don't spend time in the Word, refreshing your mind on the promises of God, let me just say that it will then be that your anxieties will continue to multiply. And believe me when I say that the anxieties among God's people in this text will be greatly amplified in the next chapter. It is one of the many negative consequences that God's people face when they choose to operate in their own strength, fearing people in place of God. And the great chapter of trusting God in Jeremiah is Jeremiah chapter 17. If you find yourself anxious, I'd encourage you to go back, reread Jeremiah chapter 17. In verse 5 it says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Well, God's people in Jeremiah chapter 43 decided that the best way to move forward was to disregard the message that God had for them. Keep in mind here, Jeremiah is with them. Jeremiah doesn't consent to this decision, but it seems to me he has no choice here. Jeremiah is a godly man. Why he is with this group, I'm not sure. I have my reasons or um, my speculations, but he is not sinning by going along with uh, this remnant. And I have a hunch that they gave him no options. I was listening to a pastor who said that he believes Jeremiah and Baruch had been kidnapped by this remnant. I, I think that that may have been the case. They may have been kidnapped. Jeremiah was a man of God's word. He was a man who had a special relationship with the Lord, and his presence of being among this group does not mean that he is acting sinfully. So we need to clear the air there. But it brings us to another great principle from the text. If leading authorities cause us to do things that we know are wrong, I mean, here's Jeremiah. Um, he, is, he is with this remnant. They're heading into Egypt. They have dismissed the clear will and word of God. There is a principle here. If leading authorities cause us to do things that we know are wrong, we need to keep our eyes on God. Jeremiah did not want to go into Egypt. He knew that God wasn't going to bless the remnant for doing this. In fact, Jeremiah was perhaps the only one in the group with enough sense to know that they were literally walking away from the blessings of God that God had offered to him, to them, just as King Zedekiah had failed to enter into the blessings of God uh, by fearing King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in spite of this massive moral failure on the part of God's people, God still has a job for Jeremiah to do. And what I love about this next section is that God still gives them the time of day to, to communicate with them. I mean, God could have given up on his people a long time ago. But instead, his grace and his mercy, God still chooses to communicate with his people, even though they've turned their back on his word. And that leads us right into that third event, the object lesson and message is given. The object lesson and message is given. God's people, they've put out a hand to God. They've said, we're going to go our own way. We're going to do our own thing. Let's find out just how far they get. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Tapanese, saying, Now, Tapanese was an important commercial town 
made up of both Jews and Gentiles. It happened to be a fairly strong city during the days of Jeremiah. In fact, it was a fortress city near Egypt's eastern, northeastern border, and they would be among the first cities that travelers from Judah would encounter. The Jews who were on the run would first settle here before moving into Egypt, but before they would move further into the land that God had warned them against going into, God had wanted his people to be very clear on one specific matter. Look with me, verse 9. The Lord says to Jeremiah, Take some large stones in your hands and hide them in the mortar in the brick terrace, which is at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace in Tapenhes, in the sight of some of the Jews. And this was the object lesson. Jensen states this, Jeremiah was directed of God to bury large stones in mortar under the pavement at the entry of Pharaoh's house, telling the men of Judah that this symbolized the impending of Egypt, namely, that its throne would be subjugated to that of Nebuchadnezzar, who would set his royal pavilion over the Egyptian pavement. And we'll see that fleshed out here as we continue. But the Lord knew that in order for a message to stick, you'd have to say the same thing over and over again. <laughs> You're going to have to include an object lesson, something that they can see. It's more tangible that way. I learn best when I can see um, what's before me. Um, if I can interact with what I have, um, there are those that are hands-on that'll help. And God wants this to stick in the minds of his people. Verse 10, and say to, th to them, this is the message. Now here is, we saw the object lesson in verse 9. The message is clarified here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am going to send and get Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I am going to set his throne right over these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his canopy over them. And this is an amazing prophecy that we find in the Bible concerning the Babylonian conquest after the Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem. Uh, because the Chaldeans, they've conquered a lot of land up till this point in history, so it would seem a bit insignificant for Nebuchadnezzar to take these cities along with what he had already conquered, but he does. And the only logical reason that I can think for him to do so was because he had been directed by the very hand of God. How's King Nebuchadnezzar described there in verse 10? He says, my servant, right? <laughs> it's my servant. I mean, God is using this world leader in some amazing ways. Notice in verse 10, the Lord describes King Nebuchadnezzar as his servant. We saw that description of the Babylonian king earlier in chapter 25, way before the fall of Jerusalem, but nothing changed. King Nebuchadnezzar was powerfully used by the Lord to accomplish his purposes. So this description of a pagan king in the Old Testament is very it's a very unique description that we have here. And by the way, it's a reminder to us that God is the one who places people in the positions of power and leadership. God doesn't make mistakes. He knows who is in power and where, where they are at all the time. Isaiah talks about the greatness of our God and makes an amazing observation in Isaiah chapter 25. Uh, I've been reading through uh, the book of Isaiah and my personal devotions, and in this verse, I love what it says. <laughs> Let's see if I can pull that back up here for you. 
There we go. Isaiah 25, verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. So when you walk through and carefully study the book of Jeremiah, you can begin to see this truth fleshed out over time. Right? We can see that. And I commend those of you who have made it a priority to be here, to study the book of Jeremiah every Sunday. I mean, we have carefully walked through the life and the ministry of Jeremiah, and for 40 years he's been preaching on the judgment to come, and it came. So when God wanted his people to understand that they were going to come under the thumb of Nebuchadnezzar, you can bet that there were not many happy faces in the crowd. But God doesn't stop there. The Lord goes on and says in verse 11, He will also come and strike the land of Egypt. He, referring to Nebuchadnezzar, Those who are meant for death will be given over to death, and those for captivity to captivity, and those for the sword to the sword. No reservations. God's people had made their choice. Instead of choosing God's blessings in life by being obedient to the word of God, they instead chose death captivity, and the sword. God is only watching out for his people by telling them, do not go into Egypt. And as they would put their hand out to God, and as they would head into Egypt, they are walking right into the middle of a battlefield. You're going to have the Babylonians coming in, you're going to have the Egyptians fighting them, and God's people are going to be there right in the middle of it. And God says, don't go there. You'll remember from our last lesson that God said to his people that if they were to stay in the land, I will show you compassion so that he, referring to Nebuchadnezzar in our last lesson, will have compassion on you and restore you to your own land. But they instead chose to go to Egypt. In essence, they ran off to the land of Egypt to escape from Nebuchadnezzar. But God is going to permit Nebuchadnezzar, his servant, to take the land of Egypt. Verse 12. And I shall set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt, and he will burn them and take them captive. So he will wrap himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd wraps himself with his garment, and he will depart from there safely. So God is going to destroy these Egyptian places of worship, just as he had allowed the temple in Jerusalem to be destroyed. And in verse 12, we have this unique statement here. God says, So he will wrap himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd wraps himself with his garment. And God is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar here. And this little statement uh, means that he's going to capture Egypt and he's going to capture Egypt with ease. Egypt will not be difficult by any means to be captured by the Babylonians. And in 568 to 567 BC, Babylon invaded Egypt and specifically fulfilled everything that's mentioned in that verse. Pastor David Thompson says there has been an inscription found that says Nebuchadnezzar actually invaded Egypt in 568 to 567 B.C. when Amasis was Pharaoh. What all of this indicates for the people of God is this. We need to first consult the word of God before listening to religious people. We should consult the word of God over the opinions of It doesn't matter what politicians or religious people say. What matters is what the Word of God says. That's what matters. This is our authority. This is where we need to land. It's right here on the Word of God. In 
Roe v. Wade was overturned in the courts, social media and Twitter exploded with various opinions on what the court had decided. There were opinions given on both sides of the aisle. And from what I observed, one bit was a bit more, one side was a bit more vocal than the other on Twitter. However, the point is, at the end of the day, what matters is what the Word of God says on the issue, right? What does the Word of God say about life? What does the Word of God say about taking the life of the unborn? Uh, how does God view the shedding of innocent blood? I mean, we're bombarded with people's opinions today in this information age, and it seems to me that few are concerned with what God says. What does God say? What does his word say? People will turn to whoever or whatever to get their take on a particular issue that the nation is going through. Well, for the Egyptians and God's people, many of them would turn to false gods for advice or to appease them. And God said at the end of this chapter that he is greater than any lowercase g God. In fact, he's going to use Nebuchadnezzar, his servant, to demolish the Egyptian God. Speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, at the start of verse 13, God says of him, he will also shatter the obelisks of Heliopolis which is in the land of Egypt, in the temples of the gods of Egypt, he will burn with fire. The obelisks of Heliopolis is literally referred to as the house of the sun. Heliopolis was an Egyptian city, and it is thought that this city was dedicated to the worship of the sun god Ray. And the obelisks mentioned here, if you just Google that, Google the obelisks, okay? They are a reference to, as the Egyptians saw them, sacred pillars. And these pillars were located at the entrance of these Egyptian temples. They are beautiful, beautiful pillars when you look at those. God says those temples aren't going to stand. And he warns his people that if they think they can get away with going into Egypt in order to worship those Egyptian gods, they are dead wrong. God's going to track them down. And that brings us to the conclusion today, uh, some concluding thoughts. Don't forget the simple truth, all right? From reading chapter 43, I believe that what God wants to communicate here is this, that believers who choose to go against the clear will of God will find the consequences to be less than desirable and will lose out on the blessings that come when walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ. God's people in Jeremiah 43 made miserable decisions based on fear over faith. So this chapter is a reminder to us that if we're going to choose to fear politicians, if we're going to choose to fear what this world thinks or the direction of where this nation may be headed, then we're really forfeiting the faith that God wants us to have as lights in this world. Uh, perhaps you're here today or you're listening online and you've been faced with a decision in life that only you can make. My suggestion to you would be to choose to stand on the word of God. That is going to be the place of safety. That'll bring the greatest blessing in life. Don't run or dismiss the clear will of God because if you do, Jeremiah chapter 43 teaches us that you will find the consequences of that decision to be pretty bitter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you have given us your word. 
that we can know you, uh, that we can know what your perfect will is. I pray that as we go through this week, we would be a people who are salt and light in this world, uh, who are individuals that will stand on your word, and I pray that uh, that impact will have an influence, a greater influence on those around us. We want to thank you for what is here uh, before us. Thank you for sending Jesus, who came to this earth, took upon himself the sin of the world, died and rose again, offering new life in him. We want to thank you for that relationship that we have with you. In your name I pray, amen. Uh, you're, you may be dismissed.